bottom of the Smash Mountain, Season 2, Episode 30, Smash Journalism 101. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Jesse, a.k.a. Cypher, a.k.a. You Get It. Thank you so much for joining me. We have Dylan Tate of Upcomer Esports here for an interview relating all things about articles being written about Smash. A little bit of Pokemon as well, but don't get your hopes up, Pokemon enthusiasts. We don't really get into it as much as we do Melee and Ultimate. So I'm very excited to share this conversation with you. If you've ever considered the possibility of getting into journalism relating to esports, relating to Smash in particular, this is going to be a great conversation. Dylan is very experienced in this regard. So please sit down, buckle up, or <laughs> it's going to be a bumpy ride. <laughs> I have recorded this opening too many times. We got stuff to talk about when we're done with the interview with Dylan, so stick around. Otherwise, enjoy the interview. Why is it so quiet? Oh, right, transition. Here we are, bottom of the Smash Mountain, and today I'm so excited to be joined by Dylan Tate, who is an esports journalist. That's right, freelance writer for At Upcomer and so many other things. Dylan, thank you so much for joining me here. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me, man. It's been a little bit of a while since I originally reached out to you about the possibility of coming on. I saw some of the articles that you had written for Dot .esports or Dot .sports. Oh, no. I should have probably clarified that before I talked to you. But I thought they were really well written, and I wanted to have you on at some point. So I'm, I'm very happy that you made time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, definitely. If you want, I can go ahead and clarify the situation about why I wrote for a different website name before. Um, the reason for that is I worked for a website called Daily Esports. I started writing for them on a freelance basis back in 2019. And recently, uh, the parent company, Enthusiast Gaming, that owns Daily Esports, purchased another esports news site, Upcomer, which had kind of been defunct for about a year. And they sort of revived it, brought in all this new talent. And so Daily Esports merged into Upcomer. So that's why I write for Upcomer now. It's technically the same gig, but uh, just under a different name and a different brand now. Okay, that that does make sense, and you have been doing that since 2019. That is cool to hear, so we'll, we'll definitely talk about that, but I guess I'd like to start with the beginning, if you don't mind, with how Smash or esports in general came to be something that was more important to you. Yeah, so the first it really started with the first Melee tournament I ever watched, which was EVO 2015. Um, I, you know, looking back, I couldn't tell you how I learned about Evo, how I stumbled across the Twitch stream, but, uh, I was watching it and I fell in love. You know, I had, I had obviously played Brawl a lot and I knew about Smash just as a casual fan, but, uh, watching a tournament for it was such a cool thing to me. And, uh, I remember, I guess I had, maybe during the tournament or whatever, I'd done some research about who the best players were and I, I found an article about the five gods and I found out that one of them, PPMD, was from the st same state as me, North Carolina. And I was like, oh, well, this guy, he's, he's just got to be my favorite player. And I watched him at that tournament, and he got, like, fifth. And I was like, let's go PPMD. And then he entered, like, four tournaments after that. And I was like, sweet, I should probably find a new player. <laughs> so that's how, that's how it began. And watching PPMD at EVO 2015, or, no, I'm pretty sure that was one of the last tournaments that he appeared at. It was EVO 2016 that he didn't make an appearance at, as I, as I recall. But this is something that you can fill me in a little bit better on because I started paying more attention to Melee specifically, but I guess Smash as a whole more towards the end of 2018. So by then, PPMD had been on the, the health hiatus that he's still in today, albeit less of a hiatus. So 
when you were watching Evo 2015 and then going from there, was it just about trying to find the continual narratives of the five gods and find events that most of them were entering, trying to watch events live on Twitch? Or did you just prefer to see what was going on on Twitter? Like, how did you keep up with it once you did start keeping up? That's another one of those things that looking back, I kind of don't remember how it all came together. I wasn't, I think I got on Twitter in 2016. So I probably got on Twitter specifically to, you know, follow all these these Smash players and sort of stay in touch with the scene. And back in 2015, you know, I think I, I somehow became aware of all the big tournaments. So I watched, you know, I watched the big house. I watched probably Super Smash Con, all the big tournaments like that. But I definitely missed some of the smaller events. And I definitely, it definitely took time for me to understand all the storylines, you know. I remember at the end of the, at the end of 2015, they released the, the SSBM rank, the 2015 global rankings. And I was looking through the list of players. I remember Silent Wolf. He was ranked like 11th in the world. And at that point, I had never even heard of him. So I was like, what? How is, how is this guy you know, 11th in the world? And I, you know, looking back on it, I found out like earlier that year, there was a big tournament where he got third place. and I just didn't watch it. But uh, I remember at a Battle of the Five Gods toward the beginning of 2016, Silent Wolf did really well there. He beat PPMD. He beat Mewtwo King. And I was like, oh, okay, maybe, maybe Silent Wolf is pretty decent. So, uh, yeah, it was definitely sort of a learning process for me to fully understand who all the players were. You know, I started at the top with the five gods and I guess sort of filled out my body of knowledge going down from there. At what point did you start saying to yourself, I want to enter in events or I want to start covering these events? What what came first to you? So uh, coverage definitely came first for me. Um, with, you know, with my once I discovered competitive smash, a lot of things kind of converged for me. Um for pretty much my whole life, writing has been my greatest strong suit. So I knew I wanted to be a writer, you know, when I grew up. But I didn't always know exactly what that looked like. There was a time where I was like, you know, when I grow up, I'm going to be a poet because, you know, I'll write, I would write my parents' poems for their birthdays and Mother's Day and Father's Day and all that stuff. So I was like, I'm going to be a poet. And I got a little older and I was like, huh, I don't really know how you monetize being a poet all that well. So then I was like, oh, you know, maybe I'll just be, be a book writer. I'll, I'll be an author. But you know, I, there were times where I thought, you know, I don't, I don't think I want to be a fiction writer. I don't have these stories in my head that I want to tell. And, uh, with journalism, it all came together like, oh, I can use my talents for writing, but I don't have to make up the story. I use information that's already there and sort of mold it together in a way that's easy for other people to understand what the storyline here is. Um, and another thing was, uh, there was a school, the, school, the college I go to now, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I had dreamed of going there for college for my whole life, if for no other reason than that my dad and my brothers were fans of the basketball team. And it's not even like I was a fan of the basketball team. I don't care about sports, but I was like, my whole life, I was like, all right, I'm going to go to UNC. And I get into high school and I found out they have the best journalism school in the state. So um, a lot of things sort of converged once I discovered Competitive Smash and decided, you know, I wanted to be an esports journalist. And also the reason I specifically went into writing about it was because you know, I knew I knew I wasn't good enough to compete. The well, for one thing, the closest like local scene to where I live, to my hometown, is in my college town, Chapel Hill, which is about forty minutes away from my hometown. So, especially when I was fifteen years old, it wasn't plausible for me to go to tournaments. Um, and also, like I didn't I didn't even play melee. I still really don't play melee. I'm more of an ultimate player now. Um, and at the time I played Smash Four, I wasn't good. So for me, as much as I loved the game, I, I knew I, and I wanted to be a part of the community, I realized competition wasn't my, my ticket into the community. And I, I always figured writing would be, would be that for me. So um, eventually, you know, once I got into college, I did start entering tournaments for Ultimate. 
but uh, during those earlier years when I was still still at home, still in high school, I thought, you know, I want to write about this community, this game, and these players. And so how did that originally start for you? Did you try to write for high school assignments and projects or for like the if the high school had like a paper, if you will, or like a journal type setup? I mean, I, <laughs> you'll have to forgive me. I was homeschooled all the way through to 12th grade, so I could not tell you the first thing about a public school or private school environment, but you can fill me in here. And also when you did start to write in earnest, either for yourself on your own kind of blog setup or for an actual like journaling place, website. Yeah, and no worries about knowing there. I went to a private school, and we didn't have a school paper, so I'm a little oblivious to all that kind of stuff too. But um, it did start on a private blog. Uh, at the time, my older brother, actually, he was in college, and he was in like a sports journalism class. And for that class, he had to make a blog on a website called Wix. It's You can use it to make your own blogs. It's pretty simple. And I, I saw his website, and I was like, well, maybe I can try to make a blog about Smash. So I made one, and I called it E-Olympia, because I was like, Olympics, Olympia, E as in eSports. I was like, this is perfect. I'm brilliant. I'm so creative. And I wrote that blog, and I just started writing about tournaments, and, you know, no one read it. But uh, for me, it was sort of like, this is this is the start of it, you know. Maybe it'll go somewhere from here, but this is sort of the start of my writing career. And it's funny, when I first started, I really didn't have a grip on, like, what writing about these video game tournaments really meant. So, like, at first, it would be like, I remember the first tournament I ever wrote about was Smash the Record 2016, which was a charity event. So that's kind of interesting in its own right, because there were no competitive stakes whatsoever. But I still wrote about it. And basically, I just watched all the top eight matches, and I was right, and I wrote, like, okay, here's what happened in this set. And then here's what happened in this set. There was, like, no analysis. It was all just, like, literally just writing what I saw when I watched the YouTube videos of the game. So um, eventually, you know, it evolved into a little more analytical, a little more here's here's the trends, here's the players that are on the rise and not so much on the rise. But um, yeah, it started on that blog. That was uh, the beginning of my journey, I guess. And from there, um, did you ever try to use it to say, hey, look, fit super fancy journalism website or news website. I have this blog here, very well read, very well noticed by the people in my life <laughs> that I write these fantastic articles. Did you ever try to put it on a resume or were you like, eh, skip that one? Yeah, I mean it's on it's on the resume now. It's a, uh, you know, I don't I don't link to all Ooh, those. Let's go. I don't link to all those crappy articles I wrote back in you know late 2015. But I do think there's something to be said about you know me as a 15 year old kind of jumping into it, not knowing what I was doing, and trying to get that experience right off the bat. So and you know I think when I first started reaching out to other websites to like try to actually write for someone other than myself, you know. Uh, obviously these first jobs I got, they weren't super rigorous, but I'm sure they did want to see writing samples. So I'd send them, oh, here's here's a tournament recap I wrote that I was pretty proud of, you know. And so, um, yeah, I, I think, again, that was always the plan. I knew what I was doing wasn't like super high quality, but I think I was able to use it to sort of, sort of leverage my way into bigger and better things over time. That's really cool. So what was your first big break, if you will? big break so i can i can if you want i can go ahead and go through the laundry list of some of the some of the websites i've written for um i will i guess the first first website to publish me was actually melee it on me um and that was a really cool experience because the i was working with Tafikins and dr z they were sort of my editors overseeing the project and it was a it was a biographical piece about leffen that got published in 2016 it was called god slayer leffen story and so uh 
again, it wasn't super high quality journalism. I didn't even reach out to Leffen. I was just basically using what information I could find online and writing from there, you know. But um so that was the that was the first one and then a lot of thing a lot of things either they one thing led into another or I sort of just stumbled across opportunities on Twitter. For a while I wrote for a website called Brash Games. Now it's called Bonus Stage. I wrote video game reviews. Uh, they would send me well, I think once a month they would send me a code to download a crappy indie game that I would play a couple hours of and review it. Um, and eventually, again, I'm trying to remember the exact timeline of how each thing led into the other, but I think probably thanks to me having that connection with Tafikins, I eventually got a gig writing with the SSBM rank, which later merged, in, or which later became the MPGR. So I think every every season since 2017, you know, I've written blurbs on players for each of the rankings lists and uh, you know, from for most of those years, that was that was just me doing it as as a volunteer, as trying to get some some other uh, some other clips to go in the portfolio, another thing to write on the resume. Uh, later on, it did become a paid gig, so that was cool. Um, and then because I was in that Discord for all the SSBM rank and MPGR people, I saw a, a job listing for Dignitas, where Dignitas was looking for people to write guides and stuff about melee. And I was like, you know, I I don't play melee i i understand the game but not at like a super high level but they probably don't know that so i'll you know i'll go to them see if i can get it get that job i did it was mostly unpaid labor i think i wrote uh i got paid 25 dollars for two articles and those articles required like such an immense amount of time and effort that the 25 hours the 25 dollars was like nothing but again it was stuff that i could put on the resume so i wrote a melee guides for them for a while and then some ultimate guides once ultimate came out and i think that was like the last big thing i did before i joined daily esports in april or may of 2019 now upcomer right yes upcomers yes daily esports became upcomer yeah right i'm just making sure that i'm following along correctly that's a lot of different jumping around but i imagine that for you it's probably just finding a new opportunity that leads to a new opportunity that leads to and that does bring us into the present and it makes me think about what that next step looks like for you if you've already envisioned it for yourself or what you want to continue to see out of all of this but maybe we can save that for a little bit and I'm interested in hearing about when you started to write about other things just besides smash related esports when you started to get into other things or writing reviews you said something about writing reviews for indie games so when did you start to expand, if you will, articles and things that you would write for? Yeah, the the game reviews things was never like, <laughs> that was never like, oh, I want to be a video game reviewer. That was more like, this is like sort of related to to esports journalism. It's games journalism. It's like off to the side, but it's something that can go on the resume and still feel connected. Um, in a sense, you know, I've I, I do occasionally write about other games, but I, I never branched out to where anything other than Smash was my main focus. Um, I do both Melee and Ultimate, and I did Smash 4, of course, when that was when that was the game that was played. But, um, you know, I think, I mean, going back to that personal blog, E-Olympia, you know, I did, I would occasionally do stories about Smash 64, Splatoon, Pokemon, Pokémon Tournament. Um, I would write about ARMS. It's kind of funny, because one thing I've found is that, um, you know, I would always, anytime I wrote an article, I would, I would post it on Twitter, tag people that the story's about, and usually they ignore it, and that's fine. But uh, whenever I did write about the lesser-known games, the, the members of those communities would, like, always, they would always follow me on Twitter and stuff. 
I know, I don't remember if they follow my personal account or the account I used for that blog, but there's like a bunch of the best uh, Smash 64 players in Brazil. They all follow me on Twitter because I, in like 2016, I wrote one article about a Smash 64 tournament. And uh, it's the same thing. There's a lot of like top arms players that follows me, that follow me, some top Pokémon players, whereas less of the top melee and ultimate players. So um, that's kind of an interesting thing where even though I super hard focus on these Smash games, whenever I do take time to write about these these other smaller communities, they like they eat it up. So, um, but yeah, I think so. Now we that takes us to now really where again melee and ultimate are still my main focuses. Um, and I, I also write about Pokemon. I think especially when Sword and Shield came out, uh, VGC the competitive Pokemon scene became a lot more a lot more easy to digest, a lot more easy to understand, so I was able to sort of pick that up and become, you know, one of Upcomer's main uh, Pokemon guys as well. And beyond that, a lot of it is just sort of being like, you know, how can I contribute to the website even with my sort of shallow knowledge of other esports? So, like, last week I wrote a I wrote an article about, uh, they announced the League of Legends Wild Rift tournament for Europe and the Middle East and these other regions, and I was like, I don't know anything about League of Legends Wild Rift. But for this particular article, I didn't really need to know all that much. I just needed to understand the rules and the format of the tournament and all that stuff. So uh, the focus is definitely still on Smash, but I, I'm, I'm branching out whenever I can. And I think uh, I definitely want to branch out more in the sense that even if I'm not like super in-depth in these other communities, I kind of want to know a little bit of everything, right? I want to be familiar with what's going on in League and what's going on in CSGO and uh I think just having that sort of baseline knowledge of other games will definitely help me as an esports journalist going forward. So that's that's kind of part of what the next step for me is still maintaining that focus on Smash because it's the game I love most, but being willing to at least be be cognizant of what's going on in the broader esports world. And I think that it's good that you're sort of focusing Mostly on Melee and Ultimate, because that's me being selfish and saying, well, Dylan, I, I obviously love seeing articles from you that are related to those two games in particular. And yes, Melee in particular in particular, but it's also a good thing to be aware of, start to build knowledge of n- nearby neighboring esports communities just because as someone who can write articles well, that's something that maybe that the future holds something to that effect. And I think that brings up a question that I wanted to ask you about who would be your main sources of inspiration either for being in the realm of esports journalism or writing in general like who are people that you look up to in that way you know it's a question that's hard for me because I know a lot of I I know they tell you in journalism school you're what you're supposed to do is you know pick a writer who's your favorite writer and sort of try to imitate them or at least let them inspire you and uh for really much of my career as a writer, and this dates back to elementary and middle school when I found out I was good at writing, it was really just it was really just me, you know. I knew that I was a good writer. I knew that's what I was gifted at. And so I really wrote for myself, and, you know, that was that. I think now, if anything, um, I guess the people who inspire me the most are, like, the people who are making it in journalism, sort of doing what I'm doing or what I want to do. It's, so like, an example of that is uh, Kale Michael. He works at Dot Esports. Um, and he's a Smash writer, and that's not the only thing he covers, you know. He He's also big into Pokemon like I am. He occasionally covers these other games, but he's definitely, like, their go-to Smash guy. And that's definitely something, like, I, I, I aspire to. And it's honestly just, like, reassuring to, like, think, like, there's a there's a place in this industry for someone like me. You know, it's kind of this weird balance where it's, like, 
you know, Smash isn't the most popular esport. It's not going to be the most profitable for uh, an esports news outlet. So they're not going to have a whole bunch of Smash writers. But also, you know, a lot of times if they have the the funds, they're probably going to want to have at least one because that is still an important enough esports, an important enough esport to warrant coverage on the website. So I'm thinking for me, you know, if I can be one of the best Smash writers out there, then and you know maybe dip my toes in a few other games as necessary. Um, I'd like to think that can be enough for you know for me to make make a career out of this. So um, yeah, if I had to pick one inspiration, I'd definitely say Kale Michael over at Dot Esports. Very cool. And what does motivate you to continue to write? Is it just because you can sense yourself getting better and better as time goes on? And especially since you're going to school for it, so I would hope so. And you would probably as well for your own sake. But I would imagine that maybe perhaps throughout this whole process that maybe perhaps something sort starts to wear on you. There's a specific part of the pro- process or however you want to phrase it. So what would you say is something that you have to draw more motivation and inspiration to get through i mean honestly the act of writing itself really has been that motivation for me especially like when i started at daily esports because you know again when i was writing it at a at doing these video game reviews for brash games when i was doing these guides for dignitas that whole time i was aware that it was like sort of related to what i wanted to do but it wasn't quite it and then when I got to daily esports, I, I started writing you know news articles there, and I was like, this is this is what I want to do. This is what I want to. This is what I enjoy. And so I mean, honestly, like some of the most motivating parts for me, I guess, is you know whenever I have a busy day where I I write a bunch of articles and I get to the end of it, and I was like, this was a really enjoyable day. And so um, honestly, it hasn't been that that much of a grind. I think as I grow as a writer and do more like feature work there will probably be more of a grind there because I'm not the best. I'm, I'm better at the writing part than the reporting part. I'm not the best interviewer in the world. I, I don't think I'm the best at coming up with the questions to ask, to, you know, to get the information I want for a feature story. So, you know, um, there's definitely those parts that are, that are harder, but the, the very act of writing is my favorite part. And the fact that, you know, it always comes back to that, even if the reporting process is kind of a drag, even if it doesn't go as I planned, it still eventually is going to come to that part where I sit down and I write something that hopefully at the end I can look at it and be like, yeah, I enjoyed writing this. I really like reading what I wrote. And that's a really, that's a really, uh, a really fun moment that happens too is when I can look back at something and be like, yeah, this is really good. I really enjoy reading my own writing. So um, moments like that, I mean, it, it, it kind of confirms to me that this is, you know, this is what I want to do. This is what I'm supposed to be doing with my life is I'm supposed to be writing. Um, and so, yeah. So do you think that with Melee and Smash Ultimate, excuse me, in particular, do you feel like people that you see writing articles, other your peers, if you will, associates, and yourself trying to cover the game, the news of the game, big tournaments that are happening, do you ever get the sense that the consumers of those articles or people who are just in the community specifically going okay this person is sort of like an outsider they're more of a writer first and a fan second do you feel like that there's sort of this perception that might change depending on who's covering the tournament a particular news cycle where the community itself the melee community or ultimate community or any esports community saying we prefer to read from someone who we feel like is one of us do you ever get that sense or do you think that that is something that you feel from melee or ultimate fans i haven't really gotten i haven't really gotten a read on that um 
I definitely think that, you know, there's, there's plenty of times where I see, you know, someone, someone writes a news article or a news article or a feature article about Smash and there's a lot of backlash because it's like, oh, they don't know what they're talking about. And the truth is, a lot of times that is the case um, because, because again, Smash isn't that most, that most popular esport. A lot of times you'll have these other journalists who are just general esports journalists covering Smash that maybe don't know, they maybe don't fully understand the scene. And uh, I would say I'm different from them because I'm I'm the opposite. You know, I'm really invested in. I'm a part of this Smash niche, and I'm occasionally reaching out to the broader esports scene. But that's you know, this is really what I what I know. And I guess the question in my mind is is do the readers know that? Do the readers, you know, can they tell from my writing that oh, I really I really know what I'm talking about? So um, I don't know. I think it's definitely a a concern because again, you see people. I think back to um, when all the like free melee stuff was happening and someone wrote an article that was like you know how can the the smash community act like they're the good guys now when you know just a few months ago there was all these sexual assault allegations and stuff and a lot of people who were parts of the community really looked at that that feature story and were like you know we we saw that there were problems in the community and we started to do something about it that's not to say that all that needs to be done has been done or everything's all hunky-dory or whatever but it does show that like you know, just because these bad things happened, it doesn't take away from the good people in the community who are just wanting to play the game and Nintendo's kind of doing everything in their power to stop them from doing that. So just stuff like that, where it's like having that that detailed knowledge, uh, I think it, it'll certainly give me the edge over other people who are maybe, maybe are outsiders looking in, sort of just trying to figure things out and don't know all the details. So, um, I mean, yeah, I think if through my work I can convey to my readers that I am an insider, I do intimately follow this community, I know what I'm talking about, then uh, if I can do that, I think I've done my job. And I think that based off of the articles that I've read of yours, that I get that sense that you actually are truly paying attention as compared to being told by someone, go cover the the, the Smash thing, you know, somebody will read about it, Just, just write about it, like that you actually do take care, consideration, while also being a, a reporter and not necessarily letting your uh, bias might be the right word. It's sort of affecting exactly what you write. And uh, the article that you were referring to, I can't even remember off the top of my head who had written that and for what site, but it kind of reminded me of another sort of topic that we could talk about a little bit where how do you tell the line between in your in in your own opinion, how do you toe the line between trying to cover something, to say what's happening, to deliver facts, and to a certain point offer a narrative while also trying to be sensitive to what's actually going on and not to necessarily uh, exploit news to say, oh, hey, wow, big news. I could probably get a lot of readers out of this if I get enough exposure. Like, I'm sure that it's sort of weird or, or tough to to have something happen, especially something negative whatever that may be, and you still have to cover it while also trying to be sensitive regarding any sort of negative topic in general. Like, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I actually, I have a specific example that kind of kind of ties into that. Um, back towards the beginning of my time with Daily Esports, I can, can't remember the exact date, but it was back when Etika, the, a big Nintendo YouTuber, killed himself. And I really struggled with whether or not I should write an article about that for Daily Esports because I was like, you know, he's he's not a competitor himself, but he has these really close ties to the Smash community. So I think it's fair to say that, well, you know, him dying is relevant to an esports audience. 
but in my mind, I was like, you know, it, I, I'd be, I'd be profiting off of him dying. You know, I'm making money by writing about him dying. And it was not like I was making a lot of money. I think at the time I would have been paid like $5 for an article, for an article or something like that. So it's, but that was a big, a big ethical struggle in my mind. And at that time I didn't, I didn't write a news story about that. I ended up doing a story later where, uh, at Super Smash Con that year, the Smashies, their award show, they sort of had a segment where they honored Etika. So I wrote about that instead. Um, but I think what I kind of came to the conclusion of is, you know, as like a society, just broadly speaking, we kind of have this contract with journalists where we we expect them to, you know, tell us the news. And in a sense, they profit off of bad things happening because bad things are newsworthy, you know, and that's what they're going to write about. But I think uh, to a certain extent, we accept that because we, we sort of as a society understand that it's important for us to be informed about these bad things and we need someone to tell us about it. So um, I think... And there are different values to balance, especially with, like, one that I sort of considered back with the Etika example was that, like, okay, if I write an article, is anyone going to read it who didn't already know that he was dead? And in my mind, I thought, you know, I don't have a big following. This is all over Twitter. Everyone who wants to know probably already knows. Um, but I do think in general, as an esports journalist, I do have an obligation to provide the facts about what's happening, even when that is even when that is harsh, even when that is tragic. And especially, again, when you look more recently to all the, the sexual misconduct allegations that came out last summer, I think it's important for us to have esports journalists who are willing to look at all this critically and say, you know, here's the facts, here's the information that we know so far, here's what's going on. And in a sense, I guess it is, you know, me making money off of other people's suffering, but I, I think it's best not to think about it that way because, again, it's, it's important for people to know about it. And I think um, as long as I do it justice, I think that's the big thing is not making it like, because again, there, I guess there's an approach you could take where you sort of uh, sensationalize it and sort of make it this big thing. But I think, um, you know, this is uh, something that like some of the full-timers at Upcomer have been talking to me about with, uh, I wrote a story recently about Simpai, the Smash Ultimate commentator who was accused of engaging in sexual acts with a minor she recently released a statement saying, you know, basically, it's, 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 it's all a lie. The facts will come out. And, you know, the, the higher-up sort of told me with this story, like, don't, don't try to be, like, creative with the lead like you might with a tournament recap or something else. Just, like, stick to the facts of the story. So I think as long as, like, even if it's really sensitive subject matter, the key is just covering it in a way that is, that is truthful, that is, that is factual, so, you know, maybe hard, maybe harsh if it needs to be, if you know, the facts are harsh, but not trying to exploit it for my own personal gain and just sort of telling the story like it is, I think is the key to, to handling those kinds of situations. And I'm sure it must be tough at times to say, in order to do this right, there are others around me who may not be necessarily thinking that way in the in terms of in terms of peers. Uh, I think that there's a big temptation across the entire realm of news to to do that sensationalizing the clickbait type things of the world just to try to get yourself ahead or the organization that you work for ahead. So I'm sure those are tough things that you have to go over. But speaking more broadly or moving on to something like recapping a tournament, how tempting is it or do you think that it's fun to try to make narratives out of results that happen and to, especially since 
you can follow along with Melee and Ultimate events so well. You cover most of them, and you're very much aware of what's going on. You're aware of narratives. A big one right now that comes to mind is how IRL events are returning. And so how do you say to yourself, when I recover, recap, when I recap this tournament, how do I spin that narrative in there somehow to sort of continue to build into that as it continues to unfold? Or are you mostly thinking to yourself, I just want to deliver facts. I don't really want to get into this whole IRL thing in this specific tournament recap or this article or that. If you want to talk about how you feel about spinning narratives or spinning is the wrong word, but talking about all that, writing about all that. Yeah, it's interesting because for me, I think the most fun part about it and why I love tournament recaps so much is that I can sort of uncover what these narratives are. But I think for some people, there is a concern that like, you know, this isn't like a storybook. These are just like real people living their lives and not everything is going to have that like neat narrative. So again, I think the key to it is just not to force it. I mean, I think I think like when you look at the Smash community, the the fact is is that there are some narratives and sometimes the narrative isn't like sometimes the narrative really is just tied to the facts like one example i'll give with recent tournaments is it has to do with none you know last year none was pretty much i would say pretty widely considered a top 5 player in north america and you get into 2021 and his results start dwindling and you look at his losses and they're really not bad losses you see, he lost to J-Mook, and you're like, oh, well, J-Mook's on the rise. He's beaten other players around that skill level. That's not a big deal. He lost to Coleball. Oh, Coleball's really good at the Captain Falcon matchup. He beat none the last time they played in person, so, you know, that's not a crazy bad loss. He lost to Gatsu, who, well, you know, Gatsu's pretty good at the Falcon matchup, too. You know, we remember he beat Wizro back toward the middle of 2019 when Wizro was in contention for the best player in the world. So, you know, losing to Gatsu is, Gatsu is not that big of a deal. And you go down the list, and you see... You know, none has all these losses that are like, they're not horrible, but they're not ideal. And you look at his wins in comparison and you're like, oh, he's really not getting the big wins to like back it up. Like if he had all these losses, but he also had crazy good wins, you're like, okay, well, maybe he's just a little inconsistent. But you see that like, you know, and I haven't made out a personal rankings list or whatever, but you know, none would probably, he would drop down on those rankings because, you know, his results, the his wins aren't really, he's not getting the good wins to match these less than stellar losses and that's also informed by sort of things outside of the game right we know nun's dad has been wrestling with COVID-19 that stuff there's IRL stuff he's had to deal with so all of that is sort of narrative stuff that I can build into an article without really exaggerating or sort of picking at something that's not there because like all that's true all that stuff all of that is stuff that's really happening and you know there's other narratives like Zane is pretty clearly the best in North America right now, probably the best in the world. And there are these questions of who can challenge him. You know, Mango does it sometimes, but Zane wins a lot of the time. You have people like S2J and Wizard that are sort of challenging him, but not really consistent, consistent enough to sort of stake a claim for that number one spot. So um, I guess the point is that, like, the narratives, the narratives are there. And the key, I guess, for, for me as a journalist is to really understand what the narrative really is. Because sometimes the narrative can be exaggerated. I think one example we could think back to with the Smash Shock being recently released was the whole Leffen as a villain narrative. I didn't necessarily have a problem with that in the documentary because at the time, we as a community kind of did view Leffen as a villain. But I, you know, if I was a journalist back then and I was writing about it, I probably wouldn't have called Leffen the villain of the Smash community, right? That's a little bit editorializing. It's a little bit departing from the facts. 
So I think there's a, a line we kind of have to stick to where it's like, you know, with any tournament scene, there is a narrative here based on what's going on. But I want to be careful not to lean too much into just like opinionated stuff or stuff that I can't really back up with the stats of, you know, these set counts and tournament results and all that kind of stuff. And so what would you say is one of your favorite storylines of 2021 so far with either Ultimate or with Melee? Oh, that's a good question. Let me think about that for a second. This is it like is a big one. There are a lot of storylines happening. I mean, I'm a I'm a I'm a big Mango fan, so I think a big one has to be just his sort of rivalry with Zayn, especially this year. Because when you when you look at last year, there's a there's a part of you that's like, oh, Mango, he can take sets off of Zayn. But then you look at their set set count, and it was like seven two in Zayn's favor, and you're like, Mango really wasn't challenging him as as much as you know maybe a Mango fan would like. Whereas now, I think they've only played at the SCL tournaments this year where they went back and forth. They went two and two. And there's this, again, looking forward to in-person, there's this potential for uh, Smash Summit 11 to be the tiebreaker. You could also think of the Octagon, which is their their money match coming up because tiebreaker too. Both of those are sort of ways you could look at it. Um, so yeah, I'm obviously a big fan of that one. I think another one, this is less of a storyline and just like sort of keeping up with a, a, a player that's on the rise, but Gatsu's results this this season so far have been like crazy. Like you look at his wins and he's got he's got like a couple wins on none. He's beaten a hungry box, he's beaten the axe. It's like when you think about who the top ten in North America are right now, and again, I haven't done a detailed looking through everyone's results and comparing them, but I feel like Gatsu is probably top ten in North America right now, which seems weird. But uh, that's just like a cool development to see someone who's been in the community for such a long time sort of sort of what feels like a breakout even though you know it's not really a breakout he's he's been here he's been good for a while but to sort of make this kind of rapid progress at this moment is really interesting um and again the that thing in the back of all of our minds in-person tournaments coming back hopefully pretty soon is you know is Gatsu going to be able to keep that up when in-person tournaments return and so uh, that's definitely stuff I'm I'm looking forward to stuff that's interested me so far I think Let's say I'm upcomer or maybe perhaps another organization that approaches you and says, Dylan, we would love for you to go out to Summit 11 because it's going to be held in person. Hopefully that is, as an aside, hopefully it is. Okay, back into the hypothetical. We want you to go out to Summit 11. We want you to cover that event. We want you to get interviews. We want you to do all kinds of stuff. Make this really stretch for our what we're shooting for with our journalism-y, website-y stuff. If someone were to come to you and say that, would you be like, oh, yes, absolutely, wow, cool, do want to do that? Or do you think back to sort of some of the th- things you had s- expressed earlier where you're, where you're like, okay, so, I and yeah, my, my interviewing strength is not at its peak right now. There's a few things that I'm not, like, 100% sure about. Or is that just something where you go, yeah, I'll jump on that? Uh, I think the answer is yes, all of the above. Um, from a practical standpoint, if that if that opportunity is presented to me, I take it one hundred percent because just as like someone trying to further my career, like that's that's a no brainer to say yes. But truthfully, I'd be I would be pretty uncomfortable. Um, I'm a pretty pretty socially awkward person. Like I'm not I'm not good, especially in like new interactions with new people. So I think that whole experience would be pretty hard for me. Um, one thing is like one of my I guess weaknesses as far as interviews go is that like. You know, with with Upcomer, we've done, like, sort of these workshops with the freelance writers, and we did a workshop on interviewing. And the lady who led that workshop, she said, you know, I pretty much go in with one overarching question, and then I just sort of, you know, guide the conversation from there. I I treat it like a conversation. I ask follow-up questions. I just respond to what they're saying. 
and I truthfully, I couldn't do, I can't do it like that because I'm not a good enough conversationalist. I have to plan out all of my questions. And, you know, I react to what they're saying. If they, if they answer my second question in their response to my first question, then I obviously don't ask the second question right. Or I, I reframe the question in a way that, like, gets me at the new information that maybe, maybe they're missing out on. But in a sense, I do kind of have to stick to a script just because I'm not, again, I'm not the best conversationalist. So uh, it all comes down to knowing my strengths and I'm not the best interviewer in the world. And I would be, I would be nervous. I would be uncomfortable. But I also think that's a big part of sort of making it in this industry is eventually I have to stretch outside of my comfort zone a little bit. And um, I mean, at first, even like, you know, I've done interviews over Zoom that started with my, my journalism classes. I, you know, I'd say I have to interview people for stories for that. And it was uncomfortable for me to do that, but I've done it and I've gotten a little bit better at it. Still not the best in the world at it, but I've improved. So I think, you know, if I'm given that opportunity, heck yeah, I'm going to smash someone 11 and maybe I'm really awkward and my interviews aren't that good and I don't get a ton out of it, but it's a first step. And maybe I go to smash some at 12 and maybe I'm a little bit better. And so, um, I guess that's kind of the way to look at it is understanding like, yeah, I would be probably most comfortable just staying in my room never talking to anyone just looking at tournament results and letting that be everything that dictates how I, dictates how I write but at the end of the day that's probably not most conducive to me growing as a writer and as a journalist so um, you know whenever those opportunities present themselves I'm maybe not going to be the happiest camper jumping at them but I recognize the importance of uh, stepping out of the box when when it can be helpful would you believe me if I told you that I feel like I'm not a super great conversationalist either I would be pretty surprised considering I'm under the impression that you're not doing my approach of writing out all the questions in advance. It seems to me you're kind of reacting to what I'm saying to guide the conversation. So if you're not the best, kudos to you. That is true. No, you're, you're right in saying that I I don't, I don't have all these questions written down, but it's, it's sort of like I I trip over my words a fair amount. And I also feel like in, in, (laughs) in real life that I'm not really so much of someone that's going to walk up to a stranger and be like, Hey, how's your day going? How's it going? But I think what I'm being uh, helped out by is uh, the power of melee where I already have something so cool in common with a complete stranger. And all of a sudden we're not strangers anymore because I can be like up throw rest or up throw up air. And they're like, yeah, yeah. Or I can be like, Hey, how about that pop off though? (laughs) Yeah. Which one? Cause you know, Hungrybox seems to get a viral pop off almost every week, but that that whole thing really helps me. And then I think I also really wanted to do this podcasting thing on on account of wanting to be better at conversations and better at talking about stuff. And melee is easy enough for me to talk about, so it's helpful. Something that I want to encourage you by saying all this is that I did this somewhat deliberately to challenge myself but also because i felt like that was the best way podcasting specifically not writing articles that also would have been something possible for me to do maybe i could have done my own e olympia for example but i decided to do podcasting because i thought i could just get better at this potentially maybe i mean i don't know i've done over 60 of these episodes and i feel like i still haven't like improved immensely but i i I think i have gotten better all that to say I I understand what you were kind of thinking about and struggling with the idea of, on the one hand, this is super exciting. This would be really cool if I could do something like going to Summit 11, or maybe somebody flies me out to a big in-person major in the future in order to cover it, to conduct interviews, to do like the whole nine yards of journalism. And you're saying, okay, great. That would be a cool possibility, but maybe it would not be super comfortable at all times. But the fact that you feel like 
if if it comes to that, if that comes up as a possibility, I'll do it and I'll I'll get through it. I love that mentality and I think that whatever happens for you, hopefully something some opportunity like that does come along. I think that something like Summoned Eleven where it's just mostly the players and staff and it's not so much a big 3,000, 4,000 person event and we don't even know when those are coming along but I think that would, would be like sort of an easier start. Then that's how I picture it for myself if somebody were to come up to me and ask me that question but I think it's going to be really cool whatever it ends up being for you because it sounds like you're here to stay and you want to continue to power up, level up, however you want to phrase it. So hope that works out well for you, Dylan. I wanted to also ask you about about how, how comfortable you are with conducting interviews that you have done in the past if you felt like you have gotten better and how you translate that to an article because for me, I, I just can't imagine converting one of these to an article. Like if I were to do this with you right now, Dylan, afterwards, and then do an article about my conversation with Dylan Tate, I would have no idea how to do it. So what's your process like for conducting an interview and then making an article out of it? Dude, I'm going to be honest. It's pretty tricky. <laughs> like I'll, I'll tell you, I, I took a feature writing class this past semester. I got a B plus. I'm usually an A student. So that's, you know, the, the feature writing, that's not my that's not my specialty. And a lot of that is doing these interviews and sort of pulling from pulling quotes from it, using that to guide the story. Um, there's definitely, I'd say like some of the hard parts are, especially when you're dealing with, with really long interviews, but really this is going to happen anytime is that, well, there's, there's kind of two different sides to it. On one side, you may have a subject who just gives you so many fantastic quotes and you're with like all these different quotes, you're like, this quote's so amazing. I have to include it. And you try to shove it in there, and like the way the story is playing out, it really doesn't fit. You have to sort of contort the story in a way that doesn't make sense to fit this quote in. And so there's that temptation to be like, "Oh, but like I just gotta, I gotta fit this quote in." And so I definitely think it's important to reach that state where you're like willing to part with a quote that you really love just because it's not really advancing the story. And there's also the other side to it, which is really hard, where sometimes the interviewee is kind of dry doesn't really tell you anything super interesting or new. They don't give you a ton to work with, but maybe, you know, you don't have a ton of sources, so you still want to work this person into the story somehow, and you feel that they're not giving you the most colorful quotes. Um, so all that's pretty hard. I'd say, like, what I've... There's this sort of, like, I don't know, this sort of, this sort of balance you want to strike between, you know, your actual writing and using quotes, because in a sense, you want... You want people to tell their own stories. That's why you want to include quotes, especially in feature stories. But the flip side of that is, you know, sometimes you as a writer, you can say something better than the interviewee can. And a lot of times that comes down to, like, you know, if a person just told you, like, factual information, you probably just paraphrase it. You don't need to quote them saying that. The quotes that you get, you really want to have some sort of emotion in them because that's that's the part that you as an objective journalist, you can't, you can't put your emotion in there, but you can put, you know, your interviewee's emotion in there. So that's how you really want them to sort of drive the story forward in that regard. Um, I guess in terms of my process with interviews, again, it comes down to planning out questions, you know, after I do the interview afterwards, I transcribe, I usually don't transcribe the whole thing, but basically I listen to it and I, I type out every single quote that I think could possibly be useful. And then I look through the quotes and sort of be like, okay, you know, what's what's going to advance the story here? There's 
in the past, I've sort of done it where I like, basically I have the quotes that I want to tell the story and I use my writing to figure out how to move from quote to quote. That's one way to do it. Another way, which I've done, I've done as well is just sort of allowing myself to write more and to sort of insert my writer's voice more and just using the quotes whenever they sort of fit in with like what theme I'm trying to get at with my writing. So uh, it's definitely a process I don't claim to have mastered. And I'm actually working on a feature story for Upcomer right now. It's not about Smash, it's actually about Tetris. And so um, I'm, I'm in the process, I've, I've done one interview for that, hopefully doing some more in the near future. And, uh, you know, that's definitely, it's, it's going to be some work for me to sort of figure out, you know, because I already have an idea of what the structure is in my mind. I have an idea of what the story is. But how do I take the quotes that, you know, these people gave me to tell the story, maybe being willing to adapt the story if I talk to these insiders in the Tetris community and learn, oh, maybe I didn't fully understand this. Maybe there's more to this than I didn't realize. Being willing to adapt my approach to the story in order to tell the truest version of the story possible. So, um, yeah, it's definitely a struggle. I'm not going to act like I'm an expert on it quite yet. Again, my, my, my strong suit at this point is these little tournament recaps where I'm just you know, using my existing knowledge and not reaching out and interviewing people. But um, I guess that's something I'm growing at is trying to trying to take people's words and let them tell their own stories. Because I think at the end of the day, that's how you're going to write the most compelling story is when the story you write is, is really is really honest and true to what uh, to what the person you were talking to wanted to convey. Something that's coming across to me as I'm listening to you talk about this is that there's a difference between hearing you talk about a process that you already feel you have mastered, which in fairness, you could always get better at the at the recaps, but that when you're talking about doing interviews and trying to do features, it's, it almost sounds like you just uh, the intensity goes up just a little bit. And I think it's because you want to be able to be better at it and the desire is there. So that's really cool to hear. And I also wanted to take an aside. I really, <laughs> can I give you a quote about Tetris? I'm sure. <laughs> give it to me. How about that Tetris? You know, if you have to cut it, that's fine. But I think that's a, uh, that might be a service. No, it's not. Maybe that, I can help myself. That'll carry the story. I maybe. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about who you would watch to become a better interviewer if you look at it that way if maybe perhaps somebody in class would like say hey you know watch this person they're really good at interviewing not me do not say me uh, that's not a fish for you saying me by the way but like my good like, my I good friend jesse is the best interviewer ever for sure um, sorry what were you saying I, I said my good friend jesse he's the best interviewer ever Right. So I look up to Sean Evans from Hot Ones. That That's an example for me. I, I really look up to him. He's a, I think he's a fantastic interviewer. And I want to give him a shout out that he'll never hear this, but is up for an Emmy Award for Hot Ones, which is really, really cool. That's an interesting question. I haven't really thought about that, the idea of sort of adapting my approach based on what other interviewers do. Um, yeah, I think probably, again, a fantastic interviewer is the lady from Upcomer I mentioned earlier, Amanda Stevens, she has a YouTube channel where she's interviewed tons of people before. And, you know, I'll, I'll look and she has these like hour long conversations. And it's again, doing that strategy where she just, you know, goes in with an idea and sort of lets the conversation flow. Um, I, I, again, I sort of struggle with that because I know just because of the way I am, I don't think I could take that exact approach, but I still think there's definitely something to learn from someone who is so conversational, you know, I mean, just, you know, my, my sort of philosophy is that I'm an introvert living in an extrovert's world. In a sense, I have to try to learn from the experts around me as much as I can. And so 
I think even if I can't take the exact same approach as her, sort of learning to 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 take take what she's doing and maybe adapt it to my own style, find a way to make it work for me. Because again, ultimately, ultimately, I don't want to just like copy exactly what someone else is doing. I sort of have to figure out my own way of doing things. Um, but I think I guess learning from someone who like maybe it comes more naturally to them, and then sort of drawing from that, pulling what I can from that, and then sort of implement implementing it into my own interview style. I, I think that'd probably be the best way to go about it. And I love that that you have that kind of an answer instead of going, oh yeah, sure, maybe I'll check them out and just you know kind of take something. It's more like it has to be right for me. Like whatever source of inspiration I draw from, it has to be something that makes sense to me at the same time. It's not going to be something that's totally out of left field or something that's like so not me that it somehow becomes me. And that just like that sounds like a process you're not very much into. It's like to you, it has to make sense to adapt. Am I understanding you correctly? Right. Right. Yeah. So I think that for me and Sean Evans, if I if I do the, a little bit of this self-analyzing here while we're talking, it's sort of like I get this sense, and I couldn't tell you why, but that he is someone who is at the very least sort of in the middle of like being introverted and extroverted. I, I consider myself more of an introverted person as well. Again, maybe that is slight hopefully I'm just good at this by now, but the whole thing of it is, is that I feel like I can sense when somebody is a little bit more on the quiet side. And the reason why I say that is because Sean Evans will actually let people talk during an interview, which is incredible. And uh, hopefully you feel like I'm letting you talk while we're going here, that there's just enough people who interview who will ask a question and then they'll let the person talk maybe three words maximum and immediately cut them off. It's very frustrating to watch. I'm sure you've come across this in some capacity in some medium that you consume content from in whatever. That's that's one of the big things that I took away. I was like, I need to let people finish their sentences. Even if I'm really excited to talk about Melee and be super like, oh, wow, you did that? Oh, wow, that's so cool. Because I do like saying those things to people because the things like you're doing, for example, Dylan, are really cool. But also to let you actually, you know, get out the thought, get out the story. Yeah, definitely. And I would say I think that kind of approach actually works best for me because, again, I'm not really the best at carrying a conversation. I'm really... I'm here to introduce, you know, ask the questions, introduce the topics, but I really, the ideal is that my interviewee is the one who really can carry that conversation. And again, especially because as a, as a journalist, I'm looking to get the information from them. What I have to say doesn't really, doesn't matter all that much, right? If I have opinion about what's going on, that's far less important than what they have to say, what they can convey to me. So it's definitely, that's always, you know, sometimes you have those interviews where the interviewee, they, they're not much of a talker, don't have much to say, and not much comes out of it, but those interviews where you can tell the person you're talking to really has a lot to say, a lot to share. That's always fun to just let them to sit back and let them, you know, give them, give you their wisdom, their insight, whatever, whatever knowledge they may have. Yeah. Those are definitely the more easier ones where it feels like they just sort of guide you through the interview process. And you're like, I'm, I'm hardly doing anything. They're just kind of taking this and running with it. I definitely feel that. (laughs) So, to start to get in the direction of wrapping up, I guess the uh, the big question that I, I, I vaguely recall wanting to get back to is why Melee and why Ultimate still? Because in fairness to you, as someone who wants to make it as a journalist and for that to be your primary hustle, the, the temptation is real, I would imagine, for other esports, especially things like Call of Duty or Valorant is really big right now in North America. I mean, I only say that because Aiden Calvin said it on the Mix Up 
episode that he appeared on with Turn Down for Walt and Radar. So <laughs> that's the only reason why I know that. I don't know about Valorant otherwise. But the point is, is that there are other esports related games where the publisher actually cares about said esports scene and pours money into it. Sponsors are welcome. You know, hey, pour money into this as well. Feed this machine, get it rolling. It's a whole marketing thing. Whereas for Smash, it's not really so much a thing. It's very much a grassroots operation. So my question to you is, why stick with Melee? Why stick with Ultimate? Yeah, I think it really comes down to just like, why am I doing what I'm doing and what do I want to be doing going forward? It's like the, the, the ideal for me, the best case scenario is that I end up as an editor for an esports news site, hopefully upcomer. If that opportunity is not available, you know, we'll see what's available somewhere else. But eventually I'd love to just be an, an esports editor where, you know, whatever news comes in for whatever game, I have enough knowledge of the games to where I can fact check, you know, whatever stories I get, edit them for grammar, whatever, send them out. And then also on the side, hopefully I'll still have that opportunity to write those Smash articles that I love writing. Because there's this balance in my mind where it's like, you know, I have to recognize that I'm not going to get paid to just write about Smash full time because that's not entirely realistic. But also that's what I love most and that's what I want to do. So whatever it is that I am going to do, I sort of want it to facilitate that opportunity to write about Smash. So the reason I want to be an editor who sort of has this baseline knowledge of like every game is so that I can still provide value to an esports news outlet, like that be my main, I guess, my main thing that I do for them, but still be able to do these Smash articles that I love on the side. Because at the end of the day, I just don't like other esports the same way I love Smash, Melee especially. I can try my best to learn about them, to learn about the scenes and write about them. But the at the end of the day, my best work is going to be stuff that I'm passionate about, stuff that I care about, and really that's going to be my stuff with Smash. So... Again, I can't claim to know exactly what the future holds, how how well that'll that'll play out ten years from now. But um, the the dream is that you know whatever I'm doing, writing about Smash, writing about these tournaments, can still be a really big part of that because um, that's what I enjoy doing the most, really. That's such a wonderful way to uh, get in the direction of wrapping us up. Uh, I have one more question for be I have one more question for you before we start to plug all the places where the people can find you. And this is a question mostly for me. I, I noticed that on your Twitter Twitter bio you have Romans eight twenty eight written on there, which says, "And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose." I was curious about what that verse means to you specifically, why it's something that is important to you. Yeah, that is my favorite Bible verse. Um, it's also, it's kind of relevant to this whole story in that, for me, I really do feel like that doing this esports journalism stuff has been God's calling on my life, which is kind of weird because there's been times where I'm like, you know, God, I don't know if like, am I, you know, am I going to get a full-time career in this? Like, should I really be going all in on this, right? My parents, you know, they want me to, like, keep other options open, whereas in my mind it feels like I'm just sort of tunnel-visioning on the esports stuff. But to a certain extent, it feels to me like everything has fallen into place so perfectly, right? I've had these opportunities where I write for, I write this article for Melee on Me, and that leads into me writing for the SSBM rake, and that leads into me writing for Dignitas. Or like with daily esports, where, you know, I write for them for several years, and all of a sudden they bring in the former editor or the former head of ESPN Esports, and he's going to run this new site that we're doing. And so now I'm at the ground floor of, like, what has the potential to be 
the biggest esports news site ever. And in my mind, it's like that doesn't you know that doesn't just happen. For me, I do believe that God's sort of been orchestrating that, and uh, so I keep that verse to heart. And you know, whenever things look uncertain, that I can trust that God's working things for good because I love Him. And so um, that's definitely that's definitely another another big part of it that sort of guided my my desire to be in this career and um, hoping, you know, again, as I mentioned, this whole journey for me has been a lot about things sort of becoming apparent to me over certain times. You know, when I, when I started writing back in 2015, I didn't have even the faintest clue of like really where I was heading and things over time sort of, you know, they became more clear. And now I'm at a point where, you know, everything's not super clear in the future, but I'm sort of trusting God that eventually that is going to, that is going to come, come to light in my mind. It's all going to make sense eventually. And so, uh, keep on trucking that direction i appreciate you sharing thank you so much and that does get us all wrapped up for this interview i think you did a fantastic job please tell the people where they can find you and all of your articles yeah so uh the main place you're gonna find me is on twitter at dilly underscore joe five five zero zero that is d-i-l-l-y underscore j-o five five zero zero and um, if you just Google Dylan Tate Upcomer, it'll take you to my page where all of my all of my articles are. So if you just want to scroll through and see what I've been writing about, click on a few of them. Uh, that'll get get Upcomer some ad revenue. That'll be good for them, and uh, that'll be good for me as well as a result. So um, yeah, you can find my stuff there. And uh, yeah, that's where you can find me, I guess. Dylan, thank you so much for joining me on Bottom of the Smash Mountain. All right, it was a it was an awesome opportunity. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Why is it so quiet? Oh, right, transition. Let me just say this right now. Thank you, Dylan, for coming on for an interview. But let me also just say, I am tired and I need to get through the rest of this podcasting that we have going on today. It's 1147 on 527 Thursday, but I don't think this is going to come out till Friday morning, early Friday morning, if you know what I mean. Burning the content candle bright tonight. Woo! All right, so... Here's what I have going on for me. Things that we need to talk about. Firstly, let's go ahead and talk about this Smash Europe, at Smash Europe news that we got a little while ago. I think it was yesterday, so it feels like a long time ago already. But this is the long and short of it. I'll try to read it word for word. Due to a change in the CDC's quarantine requirements for European countries, the same team was forced to move the cutoff date for the summit qualifier to Smash Sauna. Fate was too close to Smash Summit and would no longer be a feasible deadline to meet. This means that Pipsqueak has qualified for Smash Summit 11. We first and foremost want to extend our apologies to Frenzy, the only other player who could still qualify. Frenzy has been offered flight and entry to an upcoming offline major European tournament to offset the lost opportunity. While the situation is out of our control, we still bear responsibility in our decision. We want to thank all players who have participated in the same circuit and also want to wish Pipsqueak the best of luck in Smash Summit 11. The same team. This is really unfortunate for Frenzy, but if it makes anybody feel better, Frenzy was saying this was probably not going to be feasible for him to do anyway. And congratulations to, P- to Pipsqueak. It's not like Pipsqueak did not earn this. <laughs> Pipsqueak has been on a real nice tear in these European same-circuit events and the Levos and other 
bi-weeklies or monthlies or weeklies events that pipsqueak enters so it's going to be really cool to see pipsqueak and leffen i guess who got the auto invite two swedish players representing europe at smash summit 11 which is hopefully going to be held in person we all hold our breath for that to be a reality but tldr frenzy doesn't get to go and probably wouldn't have been able to go and oh i should say this as well frenzy is not entering into the voting process for summit 11 so if you were saying to yourself as europe let's vote frenzy in doesn't seem like that's going to actually be a thing as of now. So there we go. There you have it. This is something that would have been nice to talk to Dylan about in our interview. The news that Nintendo of America, from their Twitter, that has over 15,000 likes and 2,000 retweets and 1,500 quote tweets. The point is, is that this is getting a lot of action. According to Nintendo of America, they are very excited to share an official partnership partnership with Play Versus that will make Smash Bros. Ultimate and Splatoon 2 officially recognize varsity athletics at participating high schools beginning in fall of 2021. In other words, this means that qualifying schools will get free Nintendo Switches and then kids at said schools can participate in Smash Ultimate tournaments and Splatoon 2 tournaments almost the same as competing in football or chess or something. So why is this cool? Well, it gets the kids addicted to the video games and then they have a really long potential legacy to look forward to of graduating high school and immediately being told by the very company that nurtured their love of the game that they play, you actually will get diddly squat because we do not care about you and your esports thing. <laughs> Oh, how the tides turn. Well, that's my own opinion, obviously. I'm not speaking on behalf of anybody here, but the point is is that I kind of look at this as a half-hearted attempt to say, look, we care about uh, kids playing the video games in the school and the esports thing. And I, am I thinking that this is going to go well at all? I, I don't know. Who's going to organize these tournaments? For, uh is there anybody who's actually knows what they're doing at these high schools? I can just imagine a gym teacher or perhaps one of the substitutes being told, organize a video game tournament. They're like, I don't know how to do that. I guess I'll look it up and then they'll pull some really weird random format or they'll just pick one that's the easiest to run or they'll do the one that play versus recommends to them, which do we know that the play versus recommended rule set for ultimate in particular is actually any good? Do we know this? No, we do not. <laughs> I have many questions. So who do I talk to about all this? This is something that I may want somebody from play versus on this podcast to talk about all the questions that I have, but I don't actually know how to get started in that regard. So we'll see. The point is, is that Nintendo's doing something that a lot of people are going, oh, wow, that's so cool. Look, competition, tournaments. See, Nintendo cares. And uh, I'm not buying it. Alrighty, let's move on to the next announcement. To celebrate our 15th anniversary, we're excited to announce hashtag pound 2021 online 
is coming June 26th through the 27th. Melee singles, hashtag SSBM. Free to enter, $5,000 prize pool. Open to the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. Sign up now and join the party. And it's a smash.gg link, hashtag, sorry, not hashtag, smash.gg forward slash pound 2021. And just in case you were curious, it's 2021. <laughs> Does anybody actually think? Okay. So this is very exciting news. What's particularly exciting is that JDMH, friend of the program, is helping out with pound 2021. Another friend of the program, Deer, a.k.a. the person who runs Gallant Gaming, Gallant Gaming Open, ever heard of this tournament series, is going to be collaborating with VGBC, Video Game Bootcamp, to run this entire event. I almost want to say that Deer is kind of like the head TO of this entire operation. I kind of thinking that that kind of looks like it. Is that true? I saw Gimmer tweet about how Deer is helping out, and I don't know what the exact roles are, but I went onto the Discord. I see Deer chatting in the Discord, so I kind of want to say Deer, which would be very cool. I'm not, I have nothing against Gimmer, by the way. I'm just saying that as a friend of the program, Deer is a very lovely individual, very nice, and obviously runs great tournaments. So I think Pound is in good hands. Really excited to see what all comes out of that. So let's see. Another friend of the program, yes, let's not forget this, Nathan Sandwich is going to help TO the event also. <laughs> when you talk to enough Smash people, all of a sudden it's like you're like, oh, yes, this person's helping out, this person's helping out. Oh, wow, this is so cool. This is little warm fuzzy fuzzy wuzzies that I have right now for the Super Smash Brothers Melee community. Sniff. <laughs> I could have just done it without actually saying the word. It's like when I go, sigh. <sighs> <laughs> like, I actually do it. I should just pick one or the other. One more thing before we get going here. My YouTube is up and running-ish. I have put a handful of episodes, the most recent ones, and the pilot episode all the way back in Season 1, Episode 1. I have done this. And I was going to continue to try to upload a few episodes of the past a week while also keeping up with what I'm doing. So for example, this episode would be going up onto YouTube as fast as possible after it goes up onto all the podcasting platforms, except there are now things in the works that I cannot yet tell you about, but are coming and I'm going to hold off on uploading videos to YouTube until all that stuff starts to go through. Very excited to talk to you about it once it becomes official, but for now it's in the works. Let's just put it that way. And no more YouTube videos are going up for the time being. But you have plenty to listen to. There's like eight episodes. So you got plenty to listen to on YouTube if you really want to. And would you even be hearing this right now if you were on YouTube? <laughs> I'm still not sure how much of the audio of the entire podcast I'm putting on. Thus far, I'm only putting on interviews onto YouTube. Not the entire thing. So just something to think about for me. And now I pass it on to you. What is your favorite place what is your favorite platform to listen to bottom of the smash mountain feel free to hit me up at bsm pod on twitter or my personal handle at cypher 003 tell me what your favorite platform for listening to this podcast is or don't do that that's fine too i don't really have anything else 
I should stop talking. I hope that you all enjoy the rest of your day or evening. How about a midnight snack? Which I literally could have a midnight snack because now it's 11.57. Ooh, these are things to think about. But I hope you have a good one. We'll catch you next time.